Thank you for listening. My name is Rahul Sons and I am the host of the On Meaningful Work podcast. The aim of this podcast is an inquiry into why we work. Beyond the functional aspects, that is paying the bills and putting food on the table, can work be a source of meaning in our lives? This podcast will try to answer that question by speaking to individuals who have fought to make meaningful work a reality in their lives. To find out more, please log on to disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. In this episode, I chat with my good friend Amy Crawford, who is the founder of Holistic Ingredient. And that's all I'm going to say about this episode here because Amy tells quite a story. And I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, so you, you're someone I've, I've known for maybe a couple of years. And I think when thinking about this podcast, you were one of the first people that came to mind. I think just because of your, your story and how you, I suppose, navigated your career over the, over the last few years. Uh, but maybe before we get into that, let's go back. So what's your genesis story? Where are you, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Right. Well, we are going back. I grew up in Tasmania, um, in Launceston. So I went to school in Launceston and uh, within a couple of months of my last um, year at school, I moved to Hobart University Mm -hmm. where I studied for three years. And then the day after my last uni exam, I flew to Sydney and didn't even return for my graduation. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, So I studied... A double major in sociology mm-hmm. in Tassie and I went to Sydney I loved my life as a child in Tasmania but mm-hmm. I just felt like there was something more it, it did it felt small mm-hmm. um, and I went to Sydney in well gosh it was probably 93 with just absolutely no idea what I was going to do with my life mm-hmm. which was a recurring theme for quite some time mm-hmm. um, and in in Sydney I yeah, I guess I probably felt quite lost. I hadn't, obviously I went there directly after university. Um, my very first job was working for a real estate agency as a receptionist. Good mm-hmm. morning, welcome home, it's real estate, Amy speaking, where I sat for a year, <laughs> the front desk, mm. still wondering what on earth I was gonna do with my life. Mm. And then I decided to go back to university and I studied a communications degree, um, which I kind of enjoyed and I got into a master's to do, uh, a master's in PR, yeah, in public relations. And I remember very clearly thinking about doing this master's, which was only six months, but it was creating immense overwhelm. Mm. And then my flatmate at the time said, how would you feel if I said you didn't have to do that? And I said, I'd feel amazing. What a relief it would be. Mm. I don't know. So I, and I let it go. And then, um, and then as is the story for many people like me who end up in the world of recruitment, <laughs> I went for a job, some kind of customer service role or something, Mm. and got a job in a recruitment firm. And that was the beginning of an 18-year recruitment career. Mm. So, mm. Going, going back to Tasmania, mm. what made you pick sociology as, as, a, as a young person? Um, that's a really good question. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, mm. I have a father who was in, and a, my dad's side of the family, um, a long line of lawyers and some Supreme Court judges, and I've had this kind of inner pressure 
a lot of my sort of senior school years to go on and be the one of the three kids in the family to study law, just mm -hmm. to keep that line going. So I went to uni and I started with law and I did, I actually started with psych law mm -hmm. and psychology because when I was at school, mum and dad flew me to Melbourne uni at a point again, when I had no idea what I was gonna do with my life, um, to see a career counsellor. And mm. I was to write two essays, one on my family life and I can't remember what the other one was now, but she read these essays and I walked in the door and we sat down and she said, basically within 10, ten minutes, you'll be a psychologist. <laughs> so, so I'm right, mm. okay, but I still also have to do law. So I'll just do both. Mm. <laughs> and Satisfy both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just hoped that something would work out. And then in all honesty, what happened um, is law I did quite well at, but in my second year, I was home in Launceston for Swapvac and the law professor, the Tasmanian University, rang my dad and said there'd been a complaint that he was writing my assignments for me, which was absolutely not the case, because mm. if I asked my dad anything, he'd say, yeah, go to that section of the law library, mm. and that would be it. And so I probably didn't have the maturity to deal with that at mm. the time, and I cracked it. Really, I think deep down, I didn't want to study law, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that gave me my out. You're out yeah. So I went, right, that's it. If no one's going to believe this is my work, and if, mm -hmm. I, if I'm always going to be judged because of Dad's role, he was a Supreme Court judge at the time, mm -hmm. I thought, that's it, I'm out, I'm just going to do psych. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but nobody really told me that psych was very heavy on statistics, yes. and, and, and that was so boring. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing psych, and I I think I, gosh, it's a while ago now, I think I must have done some sociology and some sociology subjects. But bell curve at the Tassie, Tasmanian University meant that so many within the sociology department that so many people would pass and so many would fail. And my girl, my best friend and I were both in doing psychology. She was in a different troop group to me, mm -hmm. and but we were doing very similar work. She was getting distinctions and I was struggling to pass. Mm -hmm. I was in a troop group of yeah mature age students who were far more um, motivated than, than, than we were at the time. And so I sort of cracked the shits with that too. Fuck it, there's too many numbers. My mm. best mate's doing far better than I for the same kind of work. This, mm. this is not right, but yeah. still. And then I basically just wanted to get my degree. Mm. My, you know, I, I was a, there. A degree or? A degree. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I'm here now. Mm. And it mattered to me that I got a degree. Mm. I was fortunate to have dad support me during that time and it, you know, it really mattered to me. So I thought, well, um, sociology was something that felt really easy to me. I, I, was, I loved writing um, and so I just decided to do a double major in that. Mm. And then, but still with no real purpose. Mm. I just did it to get the paper. Mm -hmm. and yeah. So growing up, so your dad was a Supreme Court judge and did your mum work? Or, or yes, yeah? she did. So mum was a kindergarten teacher for many years mm -hmm. and then she went on to set up a childcare centre um, at the school that I was, we were all educated at, including my parents, um, mm -hmm. in Tassie. And so I had a, you know, I had a wonderful childhood. My father mm -hmm. in the Tasmania, Tasmania legal system, the, the judges rotate around the state. So he was away six months of the year. He'd just come home for weekends. Mm -hmm. um, so he was absent an awful lot. But I think Dad um, has had a very significant impact on my work ethic mm -hmm. um, and my attitude to work. 
in some good and some perhaps not so good ways. I'm mm. not sure. Mainly very positive in the, in, in the sense that Dad has, I have never heard him complain about work. Mm -hmm. You know, on a Sunday night, he'd be just, it is what it is. Tomorrow mm -hmm. we work. Mondays, you know, you just get up and you go. Mm -hmm. And he was, he never complained. And he had the most incredible work ethic. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something, I, did he talk to you about or did, or did you, you just saw him? Yeah, no, I just, I just mm -hmm. saw him. I just, mm -hmm. like, he, he was just so dedicated. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it paid off. He ended up becoming Chief Justice. Like, he mm -hmm. just put his, and he would say that he that he hasn't. I mean, clearly he's smart, oh. but he he would say if he was sitting here that that just came from sheer dedication and hard work. Mm. Um, and so I would just watch him go to work, come home, never complain. He would never get home and download in any kind of negative way about his day. He just put his head down, mm. and he was just. Yeah, he just always had really simple practical advice. You know, if you if there's something difficult you've got to do, Amy, you just start. You know, you just sit down and just start and it will come. And that's mm -hmm. always in mm -hmm. the back of my mind when I'm mm -hmm. putting off doing something. I've just got to start. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but on the flip side, I had this, which was sort of became quite interesting for me. I always had this sense that you have to work very hard for money. I saw my dad work very hard all his mm. career and mum worked hard too but that really stuck with me has mm. stuck with me across my career that you have to work really hard for money and it almost becomes like a money block mm -hmm. you you know we don't all have to work insanely hard for money it shouldn't that energy around that feels really hard really mm. really heavy um, but that's something that really stuck with me and I have consequently always worked very hard mm -hmm. and found it very difficult to trust that if I perhaps let go of the clutches a little bit, things would still flow and mm -hmm. things would be all right. And did that affect, say, your schoolwork at school? Were you a good student? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. I, yeah. So, yeah, interesting how it's kind of all plays out. Probably a similar, sto similar story for many kids. I had a desperate need to please my dad all my life. Mm -hmm. I've let go of that, thank goodness. But back in the day, dad, being a lawyer, is not particularly emotional. He wasn't forthcoming with... Um, approval and I desperately wanted his validation and approval all through my schooling life mm -hmm. but he never told me he was proud of me mm -hmm. and so you know I I was I was the child who you know they'd become somebody would ring and say do you want to go to the movies tonight in grade eight mm -hmm. and I'd say oh no I can't because I have a test tomorrow and I have to study and mum and dad would kind of be pushing me out of the house mm -hmm. I was always immen immensely conscientious mm -hmm because you know I've just I'd always seen the discipline mm. in mum and dad mm. yeah and and uh, did and I suppose your justification was that was that have getting good grades in school and is that how you kind of lived up to that to his ideal of, mm, well that's yeah. desperately what I was aspiring to to yeah um which always sort of, I guess in these days, working as a therapist now, you know, it comes back to this sense of perhaps never feeling good enough. And as a kid, you just want people to tell you, want your parents to tell you, tell you you're good enough and to validate what it, to validate you in some way. Mm. But I was immensely driven um, to do really well at school. I certainly, I did well at school because mm. I studied so hard. I don't think I was necessarily the, the, the you know, the smartest girl in the room, but I just, worked I had great discipline mm -hmm. did you ever get in trouble in school hate getting into trouble <laughs> did you ever get in trouble yeah 
once I got I got into trouble at a um, at school what's it called assembly. Mm-hmm. I was sitting up the back, sitting next to a boy a year ahead of me. I think I was a bit keen on giggling, <laughs> and the headmaster, who was friends with mum and dad, which made it even worse, called out my name. Mm. Oh my goodness, mm. I nearly died. <laughs> and I and I. I was always really conscientious, but I was also I also was the kid at school who got away with stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I was pretty early to have a drink and have a cigarette behind the school shed and that sort of stuff. But I got <laughs> away with it all. Um, but getting into trouble to this day is mm. something that uh, that troubles me immensely. Mm. I like I'm a bit of a rule follower. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny considering now that you've kind of broken the rules and started your own thing. And yeah. 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 That but was very liberating. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you went through uni, you got your piece of paper, you did sociology. I got my bit of paper. I still didn't know what I was going to do. Hmm. Then yeah. you moved to Sydney without having any plan of... No. Hmm. Actually, I did lie. My first job wasn't at Welcome Homes Real Estate. Hmm. It was at a French patisserie on Oxford Street in Paddington, nice. where I was earning something like $7.50 an hour, working seven mm. days a week. Mm. And I was at the time living over right across um, Sydney Harbour in um, Mossman, and this is in Paddington. So mm. I had to get um, a ferry and a couple of buses to work by something like 6, 6.30 every single morning, seven days a week, to work wow. for this a French woman who was tough as nails. How old were you then? 23, 22, mm-hmm. but I just kept doing it because mm. I was so loyal. Like you just, mm. I, you know, as a kid, you know, a job I had at school, you just, I just kept showing up, kept showing up, kept showing up and then thought, I reckon I could probably earn more than $7.50 an hour. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And got this job at the real estate agency. Yeah. And then, yeah. so, and that job was primarily answering phone calls and, yeah. Yeah, 90% of the time. Mm. Yeah just answering phone calls. I was just fielding phone calls and feeling immensely frustrated by it, but it's really hard being in a position where you have no idea what you want to do. Mm-hmm. When I knew that I had capability to do something, but I just didn't know. So that's why I thought, well, and I was getting so bored and I thought mm. I just, I need some stimulation. So I thought, well, go back to university. Mm-hmm. And dad had always said that he wanted to pay for our education, but this time I refused him and I mm-hmm. said, no, this is on me because I, there was a lot of guilt that came from finishing a degree at Taz Uni that mm. I didn't really want to, mm-hmm. I didn't really want or need to mm. a sense. And I, for a sense, and so I, I, when I decided to do the communications degree, I said, no, this is on me I, because if I stuff up or if this isn't for me, then I'm going to wear it. Yep. Mm. So, so just yeah. maybe thinking about, say, those two jobs, the patisserie and the real estate agent. So they were primarily for the paycheck, I'm guessing. Yeah. Just to, just to, just, yeah, just so I could survive. And so during that time you were in your early 20s, quite Early formative. 20s, I was earning $18,000 a year at Welcome Homes Real Estate. Wow. 18. Did you, during that time, did you do anything to feed your soul? Was there any inspiration around you besides the seven days of work? Well, it was really we, we, going back to, not, not gosh, gosh, this is going back such a long time, yeah. trying to think what I did do. Were I you think reading I was, anything or was anything inspiring you? I think the pub was inspiring me at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Great place for so, inspiration. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I definitely, I was very, very social in those days mm-hmm. and 
Um, I can't, I think in the end, my inspiration certainly came from some people that I ended up studying with. Women who were years ahead of me, who'd gone out and done things on their own and made me sort of realise, you know, that I had, there was great potential. Um, I can't, it's too long, I mean, gosh, sure. it was the early 90s. I can't remember what I might have read then or who mm. else inspired me, mm-hmm. but I do distinctly remember some women in my life who, were, who had such great self-belief and such conviction that they would succeed at whatever they did that that sort of, that just kept reassuring me that it would work out. Mm. I worried a lot about what I was going to do, but I just kept trusting that it just would mm. work out at some point and it did. You know, two years, probably one and a half, two years in mm-hmm. of being in Sydney. Yeah, it doesn't answer your question. Sorry. No, that's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so the communications degree, um, you said you weren't into it. C- could you talk a little bit about that when, when you started? Your ma- was it a master's well, that you got into? Well, it was. It? I, I, yeah, I was invited to do the master's, which would have then seen me finish with a PR degree, mm-hmm. but I'd pulled out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I was just desperately trying to find something mm-hmm. that I could... So I was able to get a lot of credits um, because of my sociology degree mm-hmm. that fast-tracked me in this communications degree because I'd already studied, like, learning theories and other things that I, you know, relevant subjects. So that's probably one of the reasons I, st- I started the com- did the communications degree because mm-hmm. it pulled in a lot of theory and um, aspects of my previous degree that I'd come to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I just I'd always sort of had the sense that my strength was always going to be with people in some way mm-hmm. and communication in some way, whether that be writing or developing relationships. I knew that you know I was a people person and that was a skill and I, that sort of what I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. But in all honesty, Raul, I was pretty lost. Mm. I just I just knew I had some brains and I needed to do something. Mm-hmm. And so throwing myself into that degree, I had no idea what the outcome was gonna be. Mm-hmm. It turned out that, you know, people along the way had said, oh, PR would be amazing for you, you, should, mm. you know. But something about it just wasn't clicking. Mm-hmm. So letting it go was just, yeah. The letting go, my God, it's so hard, but gee, it can be, feel amazing, can't <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah. but, but just, would you be able to talk about, say, what wasn't clicking when you were, if, if you can, if not? Um, because, <sighs> as you said, your friends identified something in you that you were a people person. That yeah. You, and so this was, I suppose, a logical thing for you to do. But um... What wasn't clicking? I, it, you know what, it's not even terribly tangible. I think there's just a, for me, there's, I've always, well not always, but in part I've, like there's something that ignites you, isn't there? Mm. Whether, if it, whether it's a subject at school, or it's a person that you meet, or it's a project that you undertake, or a job that you're given, something ignites you and feels and stimulates you and mm-hmm. lights a fire mm-hmm. that keeps you coming back for more. Yep. This just didn't. Mm. This was heaps of theory. This mm. was, and also, in all honesty, I had a paralyzing fear of public speaking. Really? Like, paralyzing. I was the kid at university, so I think at uni we had to probably show up at 50% of our tutor groups mm-hmm. or something. Um, I showed up at every single one of them where, that I didn't actually have to present anything, and if I had to present anything, I didn't show, or there was always an amazing, mm. a really fabulous excuse. 
And that, that was terribly challenging for me at UTS where I studied because they, you know, we had to get up and talk. Mm. And all of that was so confronting and terrifying. Mm. Terrifying. I would not have picked that about you. I had that yeah. all of my life until nearly nine years ago when I was turned 40. Wow. Yeah, even when I had my own business and had to stand up in front of a few people that worked mm. for me and talk about the finances, I'd be shaking. Wow. Yep. So, yeah. so, so Pia didn't kind of light that fire no. for you? No. <laughs> it just, I felt like, it, I was, yeah, I, I really just felt like, I mean, deep down, all the decisions were about dad. Hmm. I knew it. Like, I just, I, I needed to prove something to him. And the decisions I was making was more around my need for validation and approval and my hmm. need to, for someone just to, so that he would be proud of me. That I, because mm. I'd walked away from this double major in sociology with mm. some paper, mm. but no plan. Mm. Mm. And that troubled me greatly. Dad probably wasn't particularly troubled. I'm pretty sure Dad was sitting down there at six o'clock having his drink with mum, you know, yeah, she'll work it out. You know, she's a smart kid, she'll work it out. He probably mm. was, but mm. I was, that wasn't what was going on in my head. Mm. Um, yeah. So what would that, at, at that time, if you, if you can remember, what, would, what was that validation you were seeking? Was it a well-paid job? Was it a, re a respectable job? Was it? Uh, definitely. I, it wasn't necessarily a well-paid job. Mm -hmm. It was a respectable job. Yeah. Mm. Um, but then again, I had no, no idea what mm. that was gonna, how that was going to look or feel. Mm. So it was more that I had amounted to something. Mm. It was just this general sense of needing to amount to something to mm. prove to Dad that, that I was successful or that I was good enough. You know, and Dad never put pressure on me, mm. but I internalised all of this all of my, most of my life. Mm. Every decision I made for many, adult, many years when I was a kid and when I was an adult, as I, until about nine years ago, which was a very pivotal point in, mm. in, when I was 40, which wasn't nine years ago, actually. That was <laughs> just can I make that clear? Yeah, yeah. That wasn't, that, that wasn't nine years ago. That was uh, sorry. That was that was about six years ago. Mm. Um, but everything up until that point, that kind, of, he, I always had him in the back of my head, my mind. Every mm. decision that I made, and so yes, I wanted to be in a job that would make him proud of me. Um, it wasn't necessarily the money that mm. was driving me, but I was really, really lost. Mm. I was so lost. Just. So just again with this time, sorry to nice, yeah. dig, dig in here, but while you're doing your masters and kind of not it not lighting your fire during that time, was there anything you were curious about? Was there anything that you that you wanted to know more of? That wow, you really are digging up some younger years here. All I <laughs> wish I'd thought harder about this part of my life. Sort That's of. That's right. We can come back to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know what? I don't. I not that I recall. Because there just wasn't any. There was never. There was just never any plan. Mm. And in fact, there never really probably has been. In mm. all honesty, the way things have just worked themselves out for me in my life of. It's just a matter of me trusting that something feels good. Mm. But I don't know. I was. I was pretty lost. I had there was nothing I was particularly curious about. I didn't have a great sense of direction in terms of where I, what I could do. I just 
you know, I yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm having trouble answering no, questions around yeah, yeah. this period of my life because mm. it, it's not something I've put much thought into mm -hmm. since. Okay, we we we'll move on. Yeah. 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 Let's. <laughs> so then, uh, so you you dropped out of your your masters. So yeah, so I got the degree, and mm. then I decided not to go to the masters, mm. not to do the masters, and then I was um, interviewed for a job as a support person. Is it for a customer service job or something? I'm pretty sure. And I, I ended up, I ended up being interviewed by a recruiter mm -hmm. who owned his own recruitment business in North Sydney. And after meeting me, he decided that I would make a good recruiter. Mm -hmm. So he gave me my own office, and he gave me the phone book, and mm -hmm. he said, "Right, what I'd like you to do is to sit on that phone and call all, just get the names and numbers of all the CEOs and senior directors of IT firms in the in the city." because mm -hmm. it was an IT recruitment firm, mm -hmm. and try and get us some business. Whoa. I know. So this was cold calling pretty cold, much. Cold, oh yeah, mm -hmm. it was, mm -hmm. it, I, I cannot tell you how bad it was. Mm -hmm. And I gave it a crack because I don't, didn't like to fail at anything. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, he obviously had great confidence in my ability to build relationships and you know, whatever the case, I think I was probably in that job for, for about a year, 18 months, um, it was such heavy going. Mm. It was terrifying. I had mm. no idea about technology, but they mm. taught me enough to be able to fumble away through conversations. Mm -hmm. um, how, was, sorry, how was cold calling for you, given that you're... Terrifying. Yeah. It always has been. Mm. Yet, my, as I'm sure we're going to discuss, my, mm. my career relied very strongly on my ability to get on the phone and initiate conversations with people mm -hmm. but this wasn't the way <laughs> this wasn't the way to get a junior recruiter mm -hmm. um, to, to help uh, to, to instill confidence in a junior recruiter that's for sure like here's mm -hmm. the phone book work your way through it mm -hmm. um, it was kind of exciting I was in a tower <coughs> in North Sydney I had mm -hmm. beautiful views and I was feeling pretty special because I had my own office <laughs> but but and it was but it was yeah, it was really scary. And I lived in Bondi. I was mm. getting two buses and a train or two to work every day to go across to North Sydney. But I just kept doing it. I just kept doing it. I just kept doing it. And I thought, you know, I just persevered out of loyalty, I think. I've always mm -hmm. had a lot of loyalty. And then one day, one day I thought, my gosh, I can't do this. So I applied for a job as a customer service person in an insurance company. Mm -hmm. But it just happened to be that the interview was with a recruiter at the Morgan and Banks group. Mm -hmm. So some people listening may remember the Morgan, Andrew um, Morgan, Jeff Banks, um, who were kind of founders. They Morgan and Banks was the biggest recruitment firm in Australia for and really high regarded for a long time. And I got an interview with this guy, Greg, and he, um, we started chatting and he looked at me and he said, have you ever considered a career in recruitment? Well, here we go. And then he pulled in a group of managers and said, meet Amy, meet Amy, meet Amy. And before I knew it, I had a job as a team administrator for some banking recruiters mm -hmm. in Sydney. And, and that was far easier in that basically I was just supporting banking and finance recruiters. I wasn't on the phone call calling. Mm -hmm. But six months in, I put my hand up and said, yeah, this is not enough. I was, I was an administrator. Mm -hmm. And he said, right, okay, we don't have a temporary or contract banking finance desk, so do you want the job? And I said, great. 
So for the next year, I established their first temp temporary sort of contract banking finance division, mm. and that required a hell of a lot of cold calling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just didn't have a choice. And I, I knew once I got in front of people, it was all good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the fear of reaching for the phone to this day, like having to just reach for the phone and once I got them chatting, it was all mm. fun. But just making that call. Just that initial. Oh, mm. and some people can be so rude, as mm. we all can be, you know, when mm. you get people trying to flog stuff on the phone. Lots of, <laughs> it's really hard to be patient with them. Mm. Um, but. I managed to do really well, and then I was sort of in that role for about 18 months, and then I was a few different people from the Morgan and Banks group, five of them, mm. tapped me on the shoulder and said, we'd like you to come with us, we want you to set up a firm with us, a recruitment business. Wow. So, mm. this firstly with the, the phone thing, that, that fear, no matter, you could do it, you probably did it thousands of times, but that- Thousands. That initial fear never went away. It never went away. It never went away, and it's it's sort of it's a trigger for different things now. But mm. yet it just it didn't. I've always been just too sensitive, mm. and that's what Dad went on to say. Actually, when I when I ended up throwing the, the legal towel in, he actually then went on to admit, Amy, I'm look, I'm, now that you've made that decision, I could have probably told you, you were never going to make a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> far too emotional, and t far too sensitive. Yeah. Which was something I was told as a kid, which wasn't mm. not in, in hindsight wasn't not, what didn't have a positive impact on me for different reasons. I was too bossy, too sensitive, and too emotional. Mm. Um, yeah. How did you take that when you said that? To you? Oh, I was probably I was, I was very sensitive, so yeah. <laughs> I was probably a bit offended. Yeah, but in but in but as well, and yeah. re but in retrospect, he was right. I mm. I wasn't tough enough. I wouldn't have been tough enough. I mean, and also it required me to stand up in court. True. And I was yeah. Yeah. petrified at that idea. Hmm. Petrified. Yeah. Yeah. And so with, um, with recruiting, did, did you find that your sensitivity helped you in a way or was it a yeah. hindrance? Or? No, I think my sensitivity probably, it's a good question. I think hmm. it helped an awful lot because I had to learn... Um, I think in recruitment probably, recruitment for many people I'm sure is a dirty word. Yeah. There are some terrible recruiters out there who only care about the dollar. Mm -hmm. And there was this terrible saying where many recruiters, that many recruiters would just spray and pray, like just send CVs out across the city and hope they'd stick. Mm -hmm. And I had this desperate need to have a real impact. Mm. and with every life that I touched. And so I was, I was really sensitive to the candidates that I met. You know, there were thousands of them, but I would be the person who would talk them out of a job, even if mm -hmm. it meant I'd get a commission check, mm -hmm. if I felt that in six months' time they wouldn't still be there, that, that I knew it wouldn't be right for them or culturally it wouldn't quite be the right fit for them. So I think that sort of sensitivity held me in good stead, mm -hmm. to be sensitive to other people's feelings. The industry, the, the compensation works, it's, it's commission-based, isn't it, or is it? Yeah, oh, no, well, so with most, with, you know, quality firms, there's always a salary, mm. but you are, but depending on the firm you're with, there is immense opportunity to earn good money, mm. yeah. So many of us were driven by bonuses, mm. yeah. 
And say, if, if you had a bonus in mind, did that hinder your values or did that conflict? No. Was there a conflict with your values you know, at any time? Yeah, that? no, it absolutely didn't because mm. I've always had, even from my early years in recruitment, I very quickly understood that it was a long-term game mm. and that because I started in recruitment, sort of, so the, the roles that I was recruiting were sort of the more were the less senior roles within banking and finance initially. You know, I was a junior recruiter, so I was put on any salaries up at that point to sort of 50, 60K. But I understood, I was smart enough to understand that some of these people I was putting into juniorish jobs in a bank could one day be the director mm-hmm. or the CEO of that bank. That's interesting. So what did you see in that? So the ones that you thought would... But it was just a general understanding that mm-hmm. there's no, like the spray and pray mentality just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So it was, so with every, that's why I just, with every candidate that I dealt with, it was about doing the right thing, always being entirely honest about whether I felt an opportunity was right for them, because what I wanted is for these people to then come back to me. So mm-hmm. if this person became the manager and needed a temp, they'd call Amy, mm-hmm. because they knew that I was always honest, that I had great integrity, and that paid off, mm-hmm. ultimately, for me in my career, because once that relationship, once your name, is you know once people recognize you as someone who always operates with great integrity then in the recruitment industry that means a lot Mm -hmm. so i would never make a decision based on getting a bonus check it was Mm -hmm. always long term Mm -hmm. yeah but i suppose the industry is set up in such a way that uh you're incentivized to place people to place people and and maybe maybe be complacent about your values and well, it is set up in that way. So yeah. many people will be very complacent about their values. Mm. and But it's a churn and burn industry. Like mm. a lot of people last two years in recruitment. I had 18 years, which is really Whoa. unusual. Mm. There will be very few people that stick it out for that long. Many people burn out, and ultimately I did. Mm. But because people, a lot of recruiters I met were really short-sighted. It's like just, mm. what they wanted the bonus. They had to hit a certain budget every month. So they would spray and pray mm. and throw people into jobs and it just, they didn't think long term or what if mm. that person is, doesn't like that job or what if they feel like they've been sold a lie. Mm. That always comes back and bites you in the ass, that sort of stuff. That's mm. what I learned. Mm. And those people, those recruiters that are behaving like that are not the recruiters who are still going to be getting ongoing business in the next few years mm-hmm. from those very candidates that they placed. Mm. So I think integrity was probably something that is something that has always mattered to me very, very much. And in fact, mm. I think having my integrity questioned pushes mm. almighty buttons mm-hmm. troubles me immensely like it happened with your law professor what was that like it happened oh, oh, with oh your, sorry yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely mm-hmm. it oh my god i mean i that uh, that upset me immensely mm-hmm. yeah but even to this day if somebody questions mine oh my gosh i have to be careful not to jump too much to the fence but it really Mm. really troubled I work very hard to make sure that I'm always doing the right thing mm. yeah and so coming back to say when that partnership was formed between what are the names again banks oh Morgan and banks yeah, so and so it was yeah so I worked <clears throat> excuse me so I worked in that in the banking division and mm. then there were five others from different parts of the business that all got together mm-hmm. and decided they should jump out and set up their own business which was called Enigma HR mm-hmm. And they handpicked me as the youngest member thinking that I might be someone who'd come up through the ranks Mm -hmm. as they retired. 
And it was an amazing opportunity. I distinctly remember my parents trying to talk me out of it, but I thought, wow, because there were some personalities in, like they were managers of different divisions. Mm. I thought, far out, what an honor. So I took this job and I was probably 26 and I was given the job of the banking and finance division. So that was back in the day. One of, I think the key revenue stream for me was mobile lending. Mm -hmm. um, so Wizard Home Loans is an example. What's his name? Doris? No. Yeah, Mark. Mark. Boris. Boris, yeah. Yeah, so he was one of my biggest clients initially. Mm. It was, was hiring all of his mobile lenders mm. <laughs> back in the day when mobile lending was, you know, huge. Mm. And so for... So yeah, there and again, had to get on the phone, but it got easier and easier and easier because I, I was developing contacts, mm. doing the right thing, mm -hmm. people that hung around. So um, that, that ended up being uh, uh, far too much for a 26 year old who also had a burning desire to get overseas. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was sitting in, I was sitting in board meetings mm. with these, far more experienced, more mature adults than I, you know, making deci decisions on, you know, how much we should pay ourselves and bonuses each month and all, you know, it was just ridiculous, the sorts of, you know, the money <laughs> for a 26 year old. Mm. And it was all just, I, I could feel, I think what was happening is I could feel myself just, oh, I was 26 or 20, by the time I left that role, it was probably 28. And I was like, what am I doing? I need to explore the world. Mm. Cause that is something that I'd always wanted to do. So mm. I had always been curious about that. Mm. And as it turned out, one of the partners, one of my business partners had sold us all a significant lie and around his life, his wow. really significant lies. He, he, his part of the business was, um, his part of the business was managing, we, we, we were responsible for setting up Greenpeace's fundraising campaign. So all the people we see out in the street was an initiative that we did back, brought about back then. And this particular um, business partner, um, the, this aspect of its side of the business perhaps wasn't doing so well. And then it turns out, um, so when things weren't going so well, there was a reason for that. And he told us a lie that he had a daughter who was dying. There was never any daughter and she didn't ever die. But, but, but we all believed it. And we were there on the day of the funeral, taking flowers round at his apartment, supporting him. And then- So, so actually he staged a funeral? Oh yeah, well no, there were, no, we weren't invited. He did, he didn't want us to go oh, to the funeral. It was a okay. private funeral, mm. and you know we were all we were all pretty close. We were friends to a degree, and we trusted him. Mm. He had the gift of the gab like no other. Mm. And then things just continued as they were, and we supported him through his loss. And then um, we. Again, we were sitting in a board meeting and we we're looking at everybody's figures and again, his division was struggling. And so not long after, he came to us and said he had a brain tumour. And there was a little bit of digging around and we learnt that actually um, the oncologist he was seeing didn't actually work at the hospital he was going to very frequently and so he ended up getting a private detective. And it all turned out to be a lie. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty significant for, you know, whatever I was then, 27, 28. Mm. But anyway, not long after that, I just, you know, that sort of, that was a very challenging time, obviously. And not long after that, I just thought, you know what? I need to go overseas and mm. see the world. Mm. <laughs> and that's what you did? And I did. But you know, same old story. I feel mm. like I'm just repeating myself. I went mm. to London, 
with no idea what I was going to do with my life. <laughs> yeah. And I jumped on a plane mm. and um, I was pretty determined that I wasn't just going to go back into recruitment, but mm. I thought, well, who knows? Mm -hmm. And the very first job that I got, I knew I was put in contact with a temp recruiter in London. She said, oh, are you happy to do anything? And I said, yep, anything, don't care, just want to earn some pounds and I don't want too much responsibility. Mm. She, got me she got me a job with a venture capitalist in um, Covent Garden, I think it was, and or Piccadilly Circus. And I, it was the PA to the CEO of this venture capitalist. Mm. And I walked on in with my pinstripe suit and I sat down opposite this guy, Tom, and he said, Right, so you've ever worked as an executive assistant before? And I said, no, mm. you haven't. I said, no, but I think I'll be okay. You haven't got any experience as an executive assistant. No, but I'm pretty sure I'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, my, I'd mm. done quite well in my career that, that, mm. thus far. And I mm. said, just, just give me a go. Mm. He said, righto. We didn't say righto, because that would be very Australian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely wasn't an Aussie. Yeah. Anyway. What basically transpired is in mm. within three months, I thought, what am I doing? I'm an executive assistant to this bloke. It's not mm. really shining any lights. And he said, he, I said to him, look, Tom, I don't think this is going to work out. And I probably need to go off and do something a bit more, perhaps a bit more stimulating. And mm. he said, no, I don't want to lose you. I want you just to go away and create your job. Mm. He said, you create your job, put it on paper, what you'd like to do, and I'll just give it to you. I said, oh. Wow. This, is, this, is, this was probably in 1998 nine before the bust 88 98 mm. and I said right okay so I created this job which is very cool and mm. basically my job was to set up all the um, so they were basically an incubator mm. for any tech startups from all over the world and so some guys might come over with some fantastic idea be given funding mm. so say from Scandinavia they'd set up in in Tom's office they'd get their own office space. And my job would be to find them a lawyer, um, to find them designers, just, just basically set them up. And, um, and you know, Tom threw gym memberships at me and a mobile phone and all these things. But, you know, sort of even then, six months down, I'm like, what am I doing? I've mm. moved to London to travel the world. Yeah. But I'm locking myself into a permanent job. And, yes, it comes with great perks. Mm. So, so it was still kind of nine to five? Yeah, but it was nine to five. Yeah. And there mm. I was again in yeah. this kind of... I was, you know, just working hard, daily grind, not, I didn't feel like that much of a grind, but I thought mm. if I just keep, I'm going to get entrenched here and I'm never going to get out. Mm. So one day I just thought, nah, come on Amy, and I, I ended up resigning. I put a backpack on my back and I went off mm. for four months backpacking. And that was the best thing. <laughs> that, was the best, that was one of the best things I've I've ever done mm. you know it was amazing except for the fact that I started in Scandinavia and for anyone out there who wants to backpack I don't suggest you start in Scandinavia because it's tough going yeah how so well it's true beers are expensive oh yeah <laughs> so that's true starting no, yeah so it was, starting the Czech Republic or something so yeah. it was more the case mm. I think that there's not there wasn't really a pubby culture over there so mm. I traveled on my own mm. and I think I rocked up to I started in Sweden mm. because I had family friends over there but, but there wasn't sort of a pubby culture. So I couldn't mm. sort of walk into a pub and chat to people. And, mm. and it was also immensely expensive. Mm. Yeah, so I was probably in Scandinavia, Scandinavia for um, a few weeks and then I was in Copenhagen and it ended up, 
uh, it was raining incessantly every day for many days and I thought, mm. oh no, this is no fun. So I went to a travel agent and said, look, um, I need to get out of here. I need to go somewhere really warm and where there's no rain. And she said, Greece. I said, great, when can I go? <laughs> and then I got on a plane and mm. I went to um, Greece and then I just went island hopping wow. for probably, I don't know, uh, I mean, for, for weeks. It was the most extraordinary experience yeah. of freedom. I think what was extraordinary about that for me was I could be whoever I wanted to be mm. and there was no responsibility and it was the first time in my life where I've just, oh, I just felt immensely liberated. Mm. So what I basically would do is get on a ferry and every ferry I'd get on, I'd decide, right, but by the time I get off this ferry, I have to have met a couple of people that I could perhaps then travel with to the island, mm -hmm. the next island I'm going to and see what happens. So I'd literally walk around the ferry and I'd see a couple of fun looking backpackers, mm -hmm. generally a couple of guys, because the guys were more open to traveling with a female and a couple mm -hmm. of girls. And I'd sit a few, a few seats along and I'd just kind of slightly eavesdrop and find a way to start a Jump conversation. In, yeah. And that's what I did. And then I'd go to an island with these people and we'd all have loads of fun. And then perhaps if I felt that, you know, I'd had enough, then I could just get on a ferry and sail wow. away. And that, that was amazing. So, so in this four months, did you discover anything about yourself or did you pinpoint anything that's really, say, come to fruition now that you go, okay, this is, real, this is who I really want to be. This is where I'm lying to myself or yeah, I, that's a really good question. I think, I think it probably, gosh, that's a good question. Um, so the, the strongest memory for me is that sense of freedom of not owing anything to anyone, not having to be, I just, I think it was more, it was so much self-growth. It was just, mm. you know, when you're backpacking, it's not about the clothes that you're wearing or the money that you have. Like all of us had next to no clothes and we just had mm. a backpack and there was no money. And it was just, I, I got out there and I developed some really amazing lifelong relationships with people just mm. for being Amy, you know? And, that, and it wasn't about my paycheck and it wasn't about the fact that, I, I, you know, it wasn't the position I'd held in a business. It mm. was just me, Amy being Amy. And that was immensely um, reassuring or something. Because I think they're distant up until not that many years ago, there was just always a lot of probably self-doubt and a need for validation and mm. feelings of not being enough and not being good enough. And But going out there into the world and travelling on my own and meeting people and developing some fabulous relationships really, you know, it just made me realise, you know, what am I right? Like... I've got stuff to mm. offer the world. Like mm. People want to hang around me and it's, I find it easy to make friends and develop relationships. So that's probably the strongest thing that comes to mind. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then after those four months, you came back to Sydney? Or? No, I went back to London because okay. was, I was in London for four years. Mm. And then guess what I did? Recruitment? <laughs> yeah. I got a job yeah. with somebody top, with TMP Worldwide, which was mm. Morgan Banks had become TMP. Mm -hmm. So I got a job back with them. Mm -hmm. And I was sold this amazing opportunity to, to um, set up a banking and finance division for the music and television industry. How super cool, I thought. Mm. You know, I was, my main clients were Warner and um, EMI Music and I forget to, oh, can I just quickly tell you, sure. actually, before the first job when I got back from Greece, I came back 
black. Mm. You know, from lying in the be- many a beach. And my first job was working for the international director, marketing director of AMI Music, Charlie Diamond was his mm. name. And I was just, I just got a temp job for a few weeks and I was basically his PA. Mm. And he basically discovered a lot of huge bands. And I'll never forget, I was, again, the same conversation. Have you ever been a PA? Oh yeah, just for a little while. And he sort of doubted me for a little bit. But we ended up having so much fun. Mm. And I just get sent home with all these, this is when I started getting into dance music. He sent me home with all these Cream albums and oh, it was just so cool. <laughs> and then one day he goes, hey, I've just got to go out. Um, I need to pop out for a bit, but there's some boys coming in and I just need you to make them comfortable, um, just make them a coffee, whatever whatever they want, just give it to them. I said, all right, so do they have a band? Yeah, they're new on the scene, they're called Coldplay. And, wow. and I was, meant nothing to me at the time. Yeah. And so in walked these four blokes, like, I'm sure they were well, lads, I should say. <laughs> and, you know, and I just had to take them into a room and I wasn't intimidated in their presence because they weren't really anything at that point. Mm. <laughs> But, um, so this was early 2000s? That, that, that would have been, I reckon, nine, 98 or 99. Must mm. have been 98 or 99. And then I think not long after that, their first album came out. I can't remember, Yellow, was it? Clocks? Yep. Was, was it Clocks? That one? Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, mm. yeah maybe it was that. Mm. So that was, anyway, that was just an interesting moment in my life. <laughs> and then, then not after that, not long after that, I got a job, you know, working in this music television sort of finance division Hmm. Um, and I kind of what then sort of went on is I kept getting given jobs where I had to set something up so even though I was terrified of cold calling Mm -hmm. I was given the job always given a clean slate and a clean Mm -hmm. whereas other recruiters would ask for opportunities where they'd be given a warm desk Mm -hmm. they'd say right I want an established desk where all the contacts are already there whereas I'd say I don't want that I want to prove I want to be given an opportunity from scratch and I want to build it even though I was terrified of cold calling, it was mm. interesting. It was like the bigger the challenge, the more exciting. Where, where did that come from? No idea. It's very odd, isn't it? Because mm. I hated the phone. But <laughs> it was more that I just wanted, I think that it was just, it stuck with me. So it was just the, the, the feeling of having a huge challenge in front of me just drove me. I was so, always so driven. Mm. And so um, I did that role and then a director came to me and said, we actually need a junior accounting division. There's, we actually need someone who can support that aspect of our finance area because you set that up and I did that and so I think I was with them for a couple of years Mm -hmm. so at this point it's probably close to four years in London and then I had my heart broken Mm -hmm. terribly badly put the rug pulled out big time and so I thought damn you I and just kind of I, th- I thought more than that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you can swear on this no, podcast. No, no. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I thought way more than that. Um, it mm. was a huge, massive shock. He was mm. going off backpacking for three months and basically wanted to go single, but have me wait for him. And I was like, "If you," and mm. then probably two two weeks later, um, I, an artist, a girlfriend of mine in Melbourne, actually mm. had was renting an apartment in Elwood, and she te- sent me a text and said, "We've got a spare room." Um, would you like to, you know, you should come back. And at the time I was with my mum in Tuscany as it happens and I showed it to mum and she said, oh, Ames, it's an omen. You should mm. come home. And mm. so I did two weeks later. Mm. Came to Melbourne with no idea what I was going to do with my life. <laughs> Constant same old story on mm. refate. And, um, yeah. and then so you came, you settled down in Melbourne. You settled down and wasn't at all happy for two yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Felt it definitely was, hadn't been the right decision. Mm-hmm. 
um, I really, I was so heartbroken. I kind of, in a sense, just was doing it to hurt that guy, I think. Mm -hmm. Damn you, Adam. Mm. What an asshole. Um, <laughs> but really, that's what it was, that was driving it. Just, mm. and because I remember him then calling me, no, don't go, I want you to be there when I get back. I was like, no. You know, ran. I had a little, look, this is interesting. What's the thoughts that are coming into my head at the moment? I did have a habit of running when things got a bit hard. That mm. was with me for a long time. So I came back to Melbourne. I, um, I was having a very difficult time uh, mentally. I hadn't realised, but I actually had post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I'd had it since I was probably 25. So I came home at about 30. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of manifesting in all sorts of different ways. Um, but what came about was a terrible, terrible social phobia that many people would not have had much of an idea about. But there mm. were times when I couldn't leave the house and certainly wow. couldn't walk into a pub. And, and the consequence of that is, and that had driven a lot of my behaviours. So you know how I mentioned, joked before about how I loved the pub? Mm. Well, I did because the, alcohol softened a lot of the fear that I felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this was a real turning point for me personally in that I came back and I knew there was something wrong. I went to a doctor, my health was really declining. So mm -hmm. probably from low 20s right through, it, over from, from my low 20s, something started, cracks started appearing. Mm -hmm. I, I kept getting this really nasty virus once a year, every year that became twice a year, every year that became three times, that would knock me for six for a week. And I went to, I was referred to this incredible integrative medicine doctor who to this day, I just feel like I always, my life. Mm -hmm. And he referred me to a psychologist who basically within five minutes of walking in the door said, you've got post-traumatic stress, so I'm just gonna pull you apart and put you back together again, and you'll be right in six months. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's funny that you sort of say back then, it's interesting, isn't it interesting how when you speak, you sort of process, but um, I think, I was smothering a lot of stuff that I was feeling mm. um, with alcohol because of the fear that I, I just held immense anxiety and social fear. Mm. It was really, really nasty. But she sorted me out. Yep. Yeah, and then, so then um, I was probably, I think I was working in a temporary recruitment role mm. um, for a while, while I tried to work out what I wanted. And then a woman from Sydney, had discovered me somehow and asked me if I would set up the Melbourne arm of their Sydney recruitment company. Mm -hmm. And it was actually recruiting executive assistants and PAs into blue chip firms. And I thought, oh, interesting. EAs and PAs, normally people start at that level in recruitment. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of at the end, towards the end of my career was doing that. And I mm -hmm. said, wow, that sounds like an amazing, that's huge. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I had to break into the Melbourne market without any networks. Mm -hmm. And the Melbourne market is so relationship driven and it's kind of who you know. So that was a massive challenge. And I think that as much as they wanted me for the job, they were nervous about that because mm. it is who you know. And they could have found a Melbourne person to do the job. But I did it. I kept it, the job, mm -hmm. stayed there for four years. And she's to this day, Roxanne, has had one of the most significant impacts on my working life aside from my dad in terms of my work ethic mm -hmm. it was an extraordinary experience she oh. ruled with an iron fist and <laughs> but in a but she just the um the work ethic the i have never she just taught me what it means to work really really hard in a really focused way mm. and she taught me a lot about strategy and a lot mm. about planning and a lot about you know she had me working really hard at my business plans and i 
But again, I think underlying, looking back now, there was still this desperate need to keep proving myself. And I Mm. had this ridiculous loyalty Mm. to these women up in Sydney. I had recruiters outside of friends, recruiters outside of this business who I'd talked to around my salary package, Mm. and they could not believe how little I was earning for, for, the, for what I was actually doing for them in the Melbourne market. Mm-hmm. But I was just loyal. Mm. Just, um, yeah. Just maybe going back a little bit, if, if you're open to yeah. talking about it, you mentioned that around 25 is when your PTSD... Yeah. What happened around then? Do, do you... What, what was the instigator? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't often talk about that. So that... It's kind of a difficult one because it's hard to make help. I don't know, I've always felt the need to really help people understand how significant it was. But basically what happened is, um, so when I was in, when I was in Launceston, and Launceston's a small city, mm-hmm. and I went to a school with a private school in Launceston that was a little bit clicky. Mm-hmm. And I have never, um, survived or coped very well in any sort of clique. I'm not the mm. sort of girl that has a massive group of friends that catches up, you know. I have a dotted, really good friends around the world. And that's always felt good to me, a sense of having great independence, sort of freedom, and I don't know what it is. But anyway, um, what happened is I then moved to Hobart, and um, there was a number of girls in my schooling year who decided, who stayed in Launceston. Mm. And I think with this came some kind of sense of jealousy of the fact that I was just moving on. Then I went up to Sydney and I ended up setting up my business and other sorts of things. And when I went to Hobart, um, I, I ended up having a relationship with a lovely bloke, Colin, for a mm. while. But I ended it, went to Sydney and came back for my mum's 50th birthday when I was living up in Sydney. This was around, yes, at 25 years of age. Mm-hmm. Went to a party, went to a pub and saw my ex-boyfriend said hello turns out he had started going out with um a girl i went to school with who had developed some immense dislike and Mm. became very jealous thinking i was coming back to get colin or something which was not the case sorry this is a very long story but basically what happened is she started abusing me in Mm. a huge way in the middle of this very packed pub in front of all these people I'd gone to school with, wow. above me, below me. And what they did is they all moved away and formed this circle around me. So I was utterly surrounded. And I think everyone was so gobsmacked that she had turned so feral. I'd done mm. nothing, mm. right? But she was in my face screaming abuse with, a, with a, her older sister behind me who was tough. She was a real bikey mm. kind of chick, lots mm. of tats and... And she was fisting behind my head and, re- and getting this and really firing this girl up who just kept screaming at me. Meanwhile, there's like almost kind of like family friends, like kids that I'd grown up with, mm. just staying there. No one was trying to get her off me. No one was trying to support me. It was so bad. And someone eventually moved her away. And I sat down with some, I was shaking. Mm. And then they were all laughing. They thought it was hilarious. Oh, poor, poor Simone, she's so drunk, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then 10 minutes later, she came through the crowd with two Bundy and Cokes and smashed them in my face. And, and that was it. Then I kind of ran. And it was, mm. it's hard to portray the emotion and the feeling around mm. all that, but basically that was the turning point. Mm. And then I developed a terrible social phobia, mm-hmm. fear of confrontation and fear of being put on the spot and fear of 
you know, it was it was ghastly, but I never really attributed it to that. I, I ne- it never really made sense to me, but I just started smothering my fear. I drank, mm. you know, mm. I had a, I did more than that when I went to London, anything mm. that would diffuse how I felt inside. Yeah, that's an incredible story, Amy. Thank you for sharing that. Um, mm. anyway, so, so moving on from that, so in, in Melbourne, you had come back, you, you were setting up this Melbourne firm. Yes. Yeah. And when did you feel that recruitment, you've had enough of the recruitment? When did it start, when did it start turning against you? Okay, so that, that's a really good question. So basically, so I had four years in this business PKO. Hmm. Now, my health was continuing to decline, right? So I was still getting this virus, this undiagnosed virus that would put me on, the back, on my back. And my the company just understood it. It, is, it was what it was and I just had to, they had to leave me alone for a week but I'd get back to work and you know, at this point in my career as well probably, I was doing everything way too hard. I was mm-hmm. working too hard, exercising too hard. I did everything, I was burning candles at mm-hmm. every end and not listening to my body as mm-hmm. I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. But I do distinctly remember, I will never forget the moment, I was walking down Collins Street and I was heading up to um, my office and I had this feeling inside me and even though I was really driven and really motivated to do really well within this business, I had this feeling just hit me. It was like you are destined for something more than this. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what it would be but I had this fire that was kind of simmering and I thought, I just remember thinking, well I, I kind of love jumping out of bed in the morning mm-hmm. but there's something bigger, like there is, mm-hmm. I, could be, I could be doing more for the people that I'm trying to help day to day. There's mm-hmm. something more significant for me out in the world. Mm-hmm. But what happened is my younger brother, who's my accountant and I mm-hmm. adore dearly, he could see the money that I was earning, but also the money that I was making for mm-hmm. these guys. And he, he was incessantly, Ames, you've got to do it for yourself. Why mm-hmm. don't you just open up on your own? Just do mm-hmm. it for yourself. But mm-hmm. I didn't feel good enough and had all this doubt. God, it holds us back. That feeling of not being good enough. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then he just, he kept at me, bless him, he kept at me. He said, you need to do this for yourself and stop making people millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So eventually I did. Mm-hmm. And um, so I left that business and I went out on my own and I called it Crawford Consulting Group because this is 15, 16 years into the recruitment, my recruitment experience or career. And I knew that I'd always done the right thing by people. And if I called it that, perhaps people would come. Mm-hmm. And in my first year as a recruiter, I was probably away five months of the year sick, but I turned over $500,000 in my first year. Whoa. Like I basically got myself a name, got myself a website, got myself a logo, got myself a website, got my, shared some office space with somebody and the, door, and the work just came in. It was mm-hmm. the most extraordinary, extra, extraordinary experience. And you know, I hadn't, I had never been a good saver, so I hadn't bought a house. I spent, my wardrobe was renewed every season, <laughs> um, much to my dad's disgust and frustration. Mm-hmm. And then I remember having this conversation with my brother and he said, wow, this is so amazing. At this rate, you will be able to buy a house and pay it off in the next few years. Mm-hmm. But then my health just kept getting worse and worse, mm-hmm. but I just kept ignoring it. So mm-hmm. I was still seeing a personal trainer and still running, but then I'd go to bed for a week and I'd go back to work for a week, go back to bed. And then what happened is it would be a day at work, a day at home, a day at work, just trying to keep myself um, vertical 
Mm. And things got so bad with my health that were, there would be days when I would walk into a, to a client meeting mm -hmm. and I would apologise up front to the person I was meeting that I had trouble with, that I was having great trouble with my brain function. And please excuse me if I suddenly stopped mid-sentence and couldn't continue to speak, but you might have to remind me what I was saying and where the doctors are trying to get to the bottom of it. Like, wow. it was mm. so scary. And to even the fact that I even had to say that, it was so mortifying. Mm. But I had to say it because what mm. else, you know, otherwise I'd think I'm some vague, just, you know, all over mm. the shop. Yeah. So amidst all of this, I was having multiple tests mm. and um, my doctor was trying to get to the bottom of what on earth was happening. And it just, and then one day, well, sort of, sort of probably a year and a half, two years into my business, I just basically couldn't get up again. And... Finally, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome mm -hmm. and it was in the most part the most scary diagnosis because many people never recover from CFS. Mm -hmm. but, but I thought that and then I had this immense feeling inside me that something amazing was going to happen mm -hmm. and it stuck with me the whole time during my recovery. People would often ask me after that, so what are you going to do next? And I, my same response to everyone, I don't know, but it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so amazing. I could so feel it. So this was when you were in your depths and when you were, couldn't get out of bed. Yeah, you I still couldn't get out of bed. You so still had this feeling in you. So yeah, yeah, oh God, I had it. It was mm. extraordinary and it was sort of, sort of palpable. But what basically happened is, so for those that don't understand chronic fatigue, and, and please, if you know anyone who gets diagnosed with chronic fatigue, don't ask them, oh, do you just feel tired all the time? Because that's the worst thing you can say. Mm. But basically for those who get terribly ill, is it's crippling. Like on a bad day, I couldn't get my hands above my head to wash my hair. I couldn't walk more than three minutes a day. Sometimes Sometimes I couldn't leave my bed. Um, my mental function was so poor. I couldn't read a sentence. I couldn't read books. Um, stimulation was a serious issue, so mm. I couldn't listen to music or television or be in a room with more than one person at a time. Mm. Um, my energy was utterly shattered, so I couldn't socialise. I couldn't work. And then, um, Dad, I tried to live on my own. So basically, what happened with my recruitment business mm. is I was too sick to sell it. Mm. I couldn't cope with any degree of stress. So mm. I sent an email to my clients and candidates and they knew I was, they knew there was a real issue. Mm. I sent an email to them all and said, my doctor thinks I'll be back in three months. I've got to put it all on hold. Three months was terribly optimistic. Mm. So I tried to live on my own for a little while. Consequently, I got my dog, Wilson, because I was so lonely. Mm. Um, and then probably a month in, it was bad. I had a friend coming over to change my sheets and sweep my floors and, you know, life was mm. hard. Mm. And Dad rang me and said, this can't go on. You know, this mm. could go on for, this situation could go on for years, you've got to come home. Mm. So at 39 years of age, I moved to Tassie and lived with mum and dad for a year. Wow. Yeah, so um, that comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Yeah, but my God, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Getting mm. sick was, the best thing that could have ever happened. Mm. And you know, I was chronically ill for probably five years. Um, and I on, I referenced my doctor before, Iggy Susay, for anyone in Melbourne who needs a, an amazing mm. integrative medicine doctor. But mm. he, he's, you know, he said some things to me back then that significantly changed my life forever. Mm. And one of the reasons I became so unwell is that I learned that I, my body doesn't detoxify like a normal person. Mm. So I had toxicity readings done that were off the Richter scale. Less lead, pesticides, heavy, heavy metals, mercury, really, really scary levels. Mm. And so I went down to Tassie and being a 
pretty typical A-type. Um, it, it's hard when you're sick because you, there's no sense of purpose because nothing I could do day to day except get well. So mm. I was so lucky I had two parents who could support me and it was my sole purpose was to get my life back, mm. was to reclaim my life really. Mm. And I was under really strict instruction from him um, and became started becoming really passionate about wellness. And I didn't take any drugs. I took an awful lot of supplements. Mm -hmm. But he had me on a very strict whole food diet. His ruling was that if I couldn't grow it in my backyard, I wasn't allowed to eat it. Mm -hmm. So it was nuts, seeds, protein, vegetables, hardly any fruit, definitely no fish. And so what happened is through his advice I slowly started changing my life and you know mm. I was the person that could never slow down I was always immensely driven but always wired and I could never meditate though I knew it was the one thing I needed to do but mm. I could never slow down and long enough mm. but finally the universe went bang put me on my back and I had no choice because mm. I had to slow my mind down then it, I could have many people with CFS end up CFS end up with depression so I slowed down to the extent that I finally learnt to meditate. Mm -hmm. um, I had to detoxify my life from every single angle. So any sort of toxicity you can imagine in your home had to go. Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely over a year I started getting better. And then, so this was a year since you moved to yeah. moved back to Tassie? So we met to Tassie. Mm -hmm. there was some, it was very hard. Um, probably nine months in I got, I became well enough to be able to try and do two to three hours a week work in a little mm -hmm. gorgeous little homeware shop in Launceston just to have a reason to put some lipstick on you know <laughs> and then and then mum and dad have a holiday home down at Payson A Peninsula and I asked if I could just go down there on my own and prove that I could live on my own so I went down mm. there for three months and that mm. was a turning point as well okay so a couple of turning points but living on my own in one of the most beautiful places in the world, mm. by the beach, swimming in the cold water, icy cold water every day, mm. um, and just getting out in nature and meditating, and things really started turning mm. for the better. Yeah. Can you just quickly go back to something you said a lot earlier? When you got one of your recruitment jobs and it was quite a promising position, you mentioned that your parents tried to talk you out of it. Oh, Did yeah, because, because, you know, dad's pretty conservative yeah. and it was risky. Mm. I was okay. working for the biggest recruitment firm in in Australia mm. at the time and um, he said, like, why would you do this? Why would you mm. throw away? He just wanted to see his daughter save money and buy a house mm. okay. and settle down. Yep. But I was throwing it all away to go out with this group of people who for all he knew, you know, had mm. no real drive or, you know, hadn't set up businesses before. It could have mm. gone any direction. Okay, so, so it was more of a risk thing and not, oh, a, yeah. this is not an Amy thing. No, that was, that was what, from his perspective? From his perspective that, oh, no, yeah. no, that was, that was more risk. What are you mm. doing? Like, you've mm. got an amazing job. You've got a career path where you are. Oh, yeah, mm. very much about okay. risk. So then coming yeah. back to, so is this around the time that holistic ingredient started to... Yeah, so um, so basically what happened is I so I was in Tassie for a year. I got myself well enough to come back to Melbourne in 2012. And again, without any idea what I was going to do with my life. Hmm. It's a very familiar feeling. Yeah. Um, so I came back with no idea, but knew that I could not go back to recruitment. Um, there was something energetically that was like, 
I knew, like my dad on the one hand was like, you're crazy, just go back and set your equipment company up again because you'll own a house in five years. Mm. But I was starting to understand that the universe had been trying to throw me some really significant lessons. And if I came back to Melbourne and did the same thing and ended up, I knew what I, I know what I'm like, I would have ended up in the same patterns, working too hard. Mm-hmm. So I told myself that was not allowed. I wasn't going to go back into recruitment, even though that was a seriously easy option. Um, I had become interested in energy healing, which had be, which was, um, yeah, kind of quite an interesting step in itself in that I was always a little bit cynical and I've always been quite black and white. Mm-hmm. And I experienced, I had an experience with a Reiki master up in Sydney with, with a Reiki healing. Mm-hmm. And ha- for someone who has immense energy issues or has had, I was very sensitive to it and it was significant and it sort of opened my eyes to different therapies. Mm. And and she also, she sort of taught me some amazing messages, but one of them that always stuck with me is that was the belief that every single person comes into our life for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that what I was going to do is just trust that something, because I knew something amazing was going to happen. It was like I was waiting for something just to go bang, mm. you know, like something to hit me in the face. Mm. And I was so optimistic, I can't tell it. It's like, I'm not going to worry about this. It's going to work itself out. Mm. So what I started doing was making myself, not making myself, but I decided I'd go start going to events and workshops and gatherings to meet people with the knowledge that whoever sat next to me or stood next to me or whatever was there for a reason and I should listen. That's a great way of going about things. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. So what happened is I went to this beautiful little pottery studio in Middle Park. Mm-hmm. And it was to listen to an author who had just authored a book. I can't remember which, what it was at the moment. And a wonderful girl sat next to me, Elise Ballew, who I didn't yes. know, mm. right? Friend of yours, mm. now one of my dearest friends. And she sat next to me. And as you know, Elise is very inquisitive. <laughs> and she started asking me. And at this point, I'm still not very well, right? I couldn't, definitely couldn't work full time. And she started hearing about my story. And I was sharing how I'd become passionate about wellness and whole foods and detoxifying my life. And she's like, what are you interested in? And I said, I love writing and I'm really creative. And she said, oh, have you ever heard about this institute in New York called the Institute of Integrative Nutrition? Mm-hmm. They've apparently got a really great health coaching course. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, no. Went home, Googled it, the next day signed up. So, and I decided to do that because I thought I've got a really, I had a serious sort of thirst for knowledge around wellness and I thought well I'll just start there mm. so I did that and then I um, so that was that I was being introduced to lots of other people in the wellness industry and then the next so that was a significant point and then within a couple of months of that a girlfriend said to me you should set up an Instagram account and this is back in the day when not everyone was taking photos of the mm. food that they're eating and did that ever exist well it did when i set up (laughs) and so like i was Mm. very much an early adopter in the wellness industry Mm. and i said well what am i going to take photos of and she said Mm. i don't know you make some really amazing meals from your you know this whole food diet you're on this clean eats Mm. diet so why don't you just take photos of that Mm. i thought all right so i literally started taking photos of things that I was making out of whole foods. Because remember, mm. I couldn't eat anything out of a packet. Mm-hmm. So I'd, make, I'd take photos of this food and be like a banana spinach hot cake or something for breakfast. And then within months, thousands of people started following me. Super intrigued about this whole food diet. Mm. It's insane, isn't it? It's so yeah. insane. And I was just eating as nature intended it, but people were like, oh my God. Mm. 
So then what happened on my Instagram account is people kept saying, oh, can, can, you, can I have your recipe and what's the recipe and can I have your recipe? And so I was forever sitting there typing out recipes. Mm. And then one day I thought, this is just insane. Mm. And I need to put this on a platform. Mm. So I decided that I'd set up a website and I called it The Holistic Ingredient which represents all the different ingredients that help me recover from illness. Mm-hmm. So whole foods, relationships, toxicity, you know, detoxing, um, mindfulness, etc. So I called it the holistic ingredient. I set it up on a WordPress website. Um, no idea really what I was doing. It wasn't very pretty. And I started um, sharing recipes, but also blogging about stuff that had helped me get well. Mm-hmm. And it just started taking off. And there was never a business plan. It was the weirdest thing. Mm. I was getting out of bed every day, taking photos of my food, and people were following me, but of course I had to make money. Mm. So what happened is I went up to Sydney to continue. I decided to become a Reiki practitioner. Mm. And this particular woman gave me this one two-hour therapy session called CJC therapy. And I went into it feeling a bit cynical. Mm. Basically in this two-hour therapy is you just bullet point list of everything that you write a bullet point list of everything that um, is holding you back from feeling amazing, not feeling good enough, desperate need to please my dad, feeling stuck, fear of never having a normal life, fear of never being sick of chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Walked out, oh, paralyzing fear of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Walked out without all of it. I, and then this is just to some of you people who are gonna get yeah, rushed, whatever. Yeah. But basically what happened is within eight to 10 weeks of that, mm-hmm. the holistic ingredient just went, uh, it just took off. And what so happened, how were you making money from So yeah, so what happened is she gave me this two hour session, right? Mm. And it was so transformational, I can't tell you. Mm. And then she became a very good friend and she designed this therapy. So basically it's neuro-linguistic programming, emotional freedom technique, hypnosis, Reiki, and a couple of other processes all rolled up into one two-hour session. Mm -hmm. She had designed it and put it all together because she wanted to create a therapy whereby she would be able to empower people to go off into the world, Mm -hmm. feeling amazing and not have to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible business model. (laughs) But I basically (laughs) said to her, um, Jo, you've got to do something with this because you know, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, mm. nobody can give anyone else the session you've just given me. So mm. she turned it into a practitioner course. And then not long after, I was one of the first sort of four or five practitioners to do this really intensive course. Mm. And then the next day I flew back to um, Melbourne and started seeing clients. And it was amazing. Like I was fully booked mm-hmm. for in some instances two to three months, Mm -hmm. seeing clients face-to-face or via Skype all over the world. And so that was the biggest sort of, that was my biggest income Mm -hmm. stream, except then my psychologist who I'd continue to see, the one who diagnosed me, Mm -hmm. she was amazing. And then she she found me on Instagram and she said, Amy, you've got to do something with with these recipes. She said, you should turn all of those into recipe books. So then I went, yeah, right. So that's a good idea. So I then went on to do all the food styling and photography and, and ended up doing a series of four or five whole food recipe ebooks. Mm. Sort of that, so that became another revenue stream when, when ebooks also weren't very popular. Mm. Now, the, so yeah, so I was kind of, there was a revenue stream for my therapy practice from my ebooks and then because I was gathering a really good following, I was also becoming the ambassador for products mm. like the face of an yo- organic yogurt brand or sure. skincare or whatever it was. And companies sort of paying me to chat about stuff, which I always did with integrity. It had to be really right on brand. Mm-hmm. But what happened is a year 
in, um, what happened is I was, I was, I ended up working my backside off because mm. I was just doing what I loved every day. Mm. I mean, how amazing. Mm. And here and I ended up being diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, which is sort of a, which is nasty, but like a dumbed down version of CFS. Mm-hmm. And then I had to reassess again <laughs> <laughs> and pick up my meditation practice again. But mm. yeah, so that's sort of how it took off. It, took, it, it all started because I got sick, um, became passionate in wellness and then distrusted that I should just, I think what was driving me every day was this feeling of just get out of bed, just put one foot in front of the other in a direction that feels right and it will work itself out. And it just mm. did. Just, wow. just did without any business plan. And I think, well, listening to your story now, I think at every stage of your life, there was this aspect of, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm just going to throw myself into it. Still it still is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. think there is a huge strength to that. And, and it's something that I'm maybe getting a little bit, little bit more accustomed to because my background is in engineering. And mm. And if something's not on a piece of paper, it doesn't exist. Or, you know, it, I'm very um, right. rational in that sense. I need to make a plan. I need to execute yeah, it. so interesting. And so hearing your story is that... That's the opposite. Yeah. I, um, yeah. And, and I, you know, I had to think prior to catching up with you about a few areas or perhaps failures along the way and things that, like, I've... For the, some people listening, this might be a little bit woo-woo, but mm. I'm, you know, in part, I'm an energy healer in some of the work, in the work that I do, and I've come to really trust the feelings in my body, but also because, and my intuition. Mm. But because of that two-hour CTC session I had, my sense of self-belief became so significant mm-hmm. that I have, I believe that I can do anything. Mm-hmm. Whether or not my body will allow me is a different story. But if someone said to me, you could go and do that, why don't you do that? Why don't you? Well, yeah, of course I can yeah. do that. Like, there's no self-doubt anymore. Mm-hmm. There used to be an awful lot of that. Mm-hmm. And also and this validation. That disappeared. Mm-hmm. And my God, I mean, my dad, like, <laughs> like when I, oh my goodness, like even trying to help them understand. I mean, there's no point trying to help dad understand what a Reiki master is or mm-hmm. the therapies that I do, because even I can't explain how EFT works. It just does. You tap mm-hmm. on someone's head and it clears blocks. I mean, weird. You know, even mm-hmm. I am like, how can this work? But I just, I've, I've learned to let go of the need to know mm-hmm. and just trust that some things just do. <laughs> mm. I'm not very sciencey. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I think I just, it got, it's got to the point, it got to the point within my career, I just thought, you know what, everything, typically speaking, things just work out and they mm. will just work out mm. as long as I keep doing what feels right to me and I don't allow myself to get into that position of where I'm pushing and pushing and pushing for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. like, to earn validation mm. and approval or to make someone proud of me. Mm-hmm. I think maybe in some way it goes back to your four-month backpacking trip where you discover that, hey, these people just like me for me. Yeah. Right? And I don't need to earn X but, amount of dollars. And Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which was, as I said, really liberating. Yeah. Mm. It was amazing. Feel that. So... Um, yeah, the holistic ingredient has been a really, really interesting journey of a lot of checking in, mm-hmm. Con- constant checking in around my work behaviours because to this day, I don't, I mean, I, I, I have consistently worked very hard, but I have to be very, very careful about having, living a life 
um, within my capabilities. So mm-hmm. there are certain things that, you know, I can't do extensive cardio, I can't do strength work for some reason, my body just, there's a post-exercise malaise and there's, I've had to let go of a lot of things mm-hmm. that I, a lot of exercise has always been so significant for me. Um, but I can't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> but <Not> anyway, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but yeah, back to me sort of having to check in, I have to be mm-hmm. careful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has been a really, really interesting journey. But again, no business plan. Mm. But there's been some really tough times. Mm. Like there was a, if you're happy for me to talk about a sure. turning point mm. in my, my business. Mm. Um, I, many of you listening may have heard of Belle Gibson, who was a wellness blogger just like myself, who claimed that she had brain tumours mm-hmm. and was dying. And so she put out a recipe book based on this that was um, published. Um, she grew a huge feeling, a mm-hmm. huge following. She had Apple create an app for her mm-hmm. and it all turned out to be a lie. Mm-hmm. She sold a wellness story on the back of a lie. Mm-hmm. And this was at a point when I was getting some, um, some amazing opportunities with magazines and um, some really good publicity. Um, but that really saw a turning point in my business mm-hmm. because then, and it was a good thing in many respects, but then, people stop trusting the so-called wellness experts. Mm-hmm. And I was no wellness expert, you know, I was a health coach mm-hmm. and I was a mindset therapist, and, um, but I was certainly not qualified to speak about a lot of the stuff that I spoke about. So I had to really keep myself in check then. But what happened is a lot of the work that I was being previously given disappeared mm-hmm. because publishers became too scared to touch me in magazines, wouldn't speak to anyone without a qualification. Mm-hmm. And then, so, so I feel like that was a moment in time when I, when I really need to start kind of reassessing what I was going to do with my business mm-hmm. because things weren't so easy anymore. Mm. What did you do? Um, well, I, so I knew that I think, I, so I think one of the biggest challenges of working on your own, which I've continued to do in the main, mm-hmm. is it can be very difficult to stay inspired. Mm-hmm. And it can be very difficult to reinvent yourself when you haven't got other ideas and inspiration around you. And, and, and that's probably, I don't, can, I'm a creative person, but I don't think I'm a great ideas person. Mm. Um, I, yeah, but basically what happened is there's a blog post on my website called Eight Ways to Build Your Vibration, which mm. to this day is the most widely read blog post on my website. Mm. And people, a lot of people still come to me for a CTC session all over the world. I see a lot of Americans who find that blog post, how do I build my vibration? How do mm-hmm. I build my energy? And then book in for a session. Mm-hmm. I thought, far out, people are crying out for this. Mm-hmm. You know, they, so I decided to create an e-course. Mm-hmm. So I spent so much time and money building an e-course. It was going to be a 10-week e- e-course on how to build your energy and vibration which I, I felt, and I still do feel there's a, there will be an audience for it. But I'm such a perfectionist. Mm. And, um, I, you know, I took myself off down to mum and dad's holiday house and did a ride. I, I pretty much wrote the course in a week, but mm. in a very ineffective way. I, I pretty much wrote a book, which I've still got. <laughs> and then I came back and then I paid an online learning educator to help me turn it into an amazing learning experience with mm. exercises and activities. I paid this woman thousands. Mm-hmm. But as we started working through each of the modules, I was getting myself more and more overwhelmed. And there was so much attached to the outcome because mm. I was hardly seeing clients while I did this. I was hardly earning money. Mm. And the problem with my therapy business is I never see you again. 
So it doesn't matter how beautifully we build rapport, mm. you're not coming back, generally speaking, right? So every client is a new client. Mm. And all the while, as I was creating this e-course, there was this massive fear of shit, what if this actually doesn't work? Mm. And then I just got so overwhelmed at the idea of having to do videos and I was just, oh my God, the fear and the, I was getting frozen, frozen in the process and terrified of, I'd told so many people about what I was doing that I thought, I can't, I'm gonna let people down, I'm gonna let myself down, I can't possibly not do it. Then again, I asked myself that question, what would you do if you just let it go? Mm. What would you do? How would you feel? Mm. And I thought, oh my God. I feel so amazing. <laughs> so thousands and thousands of dollars later, I put my pen down. And then basically within eight months of that, I had a six figure essential oils business. So it was then I did that. Mm. Two years previously, a girlfriend had enrolled me with doTERRA. Mm -hmm. So doTERRA is the biggest essential oil business in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a network marketing business. She had enrolled me two years earlier with an account. I'd been using essential oils. They were having an impact but I didn't want to do the business mm -hmm. and it just didn't feel right. I had too much other stuff on my plate. I was, there was other things I was doing. I was being a business coach and other things. I was the jack of every trade and the master of not many. <laughs> and then this girlfriend of mine was doing really well with doTERRA. Mm. And so I'd let go of this and I thought far out, there's gotta be an easy way. I was starting to get a bit paralyzed with fear of how was I gonna to continue to make an income? Mm -hmm. And just to put things into perspective, with my Instagram account six years ago, mm -hmm. I could have put a post up one day saying, if you are fearful of public speaking or, you know, I can free you of public, fear of public speaking in two hours, which mm -hmm. in some instances I can, I'd get 60 emails at night mm -hmm. and then be booked solid. If mm -hmm. I did that today, I probably wouldn't get one. People don't see my content, I don't know, there's so many people out there trying to make a buck online. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I was getting into this, there was this sense of I am only myself, I can only see so many clients every week. And so I made this call to my girlfriend and I said, I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna do it. Mm. I'm gonna do it till, my, till I earn my rent. And there are ranks within the doTERRA business. So mm. I said, I'll get to silver, which is 27,000. I'll just do that. Mm. And then I'm, that's all I'm gonna do though. And I did it in two or three months. And I thought, oh, geez, I'm working way too hard for that. I'll do it till I double that and get to gold. And I mm. did it the next month. <laughs> and so, so it went. So, and then the beautiful thing about the, this part of my business, which has brought so much amazing freedom into my life for so many reasons, is that it now is very clear to me why I was in the recruitment industry for as long as I was. Mm -hmm. It's all making sense. On all those cold calls and all, all of and you know I don't cold call in the essential oil business, yeah. but the building an essential oil business in the manner in which I've done has taken a lot of hard work, a hell of a lot of tenacity, mm. an awful lot of resilience, um, it, a lot of strategy, mm. um, a good business brain, um, and uh, definitely sales. Mm. I mean, you know, I'll go. To, you can go to an essential oil conference and I'll say, it's not sales, but you're not selling. You know, what you're doing is changing people's lives. It's like at the end of the day, I'm selling. Mm -hmm. And I run work, multiple workshops a month and it is, I educate people around the use of these oils, but effectively, you know, it's a selling role. Mm -hmm. It all comes down to my ability to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and my career rested on that. Mm. So it's just made sense and I started I started building this essential oils business and it happens so easily mm. and it can and it, it just lights me up mm. and the beautiful thing about it is that you you, you do 
ultimately you start earning a residual income, which mm. has removed all that financial strain that was mm. driving a lot of decisions that weren't necessarily right for my business. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, <laughs> so now there's that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, just keep an eye on the time. Thank you so yeah. much for, for spending this time. Just a few questions to finish up. Um, I suppose when, when you think of the term meaningful work, what does that term mean for you now? Mm. Um, okay, so I guess fundamentally for me, there's a sense of, yeah, it's an interesting question. So I have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. Um, I can be very numbers driven and very, mm. very heavy in my, uh, I get, I can, I, I'm hugely inspired and motivated, sort of, I, I, I sit very comfortably with my business brain. Mm -hmm. um, but the stuff that lights my fire, the sorts of things that truly light my fire is when I actually touch somebody else and make a difference in their life. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if I'm not seeing therapy clients on a regular basis, what happens is I start just getting into this kind of right number generation, mm -hmm. you know, the, the business brain becomes very, very prominent and I kind of forget about why I'm fundamentally doing this. Mm -hmm. But then what happens is I see a therapy client who comes to me with anxiety or depression or feelings of not being good enough, just mm -hmm. like me, and mm -hmm. then they send me an email two months later and say, oh my God, you have no idea what you've just done to my life. Mm. Like how much my life has transformed. And that, and so even through, and then I get um, messages from families who've had children who just don't sleep and they're using essential oils to support their sleep or with anxiety or ADHD or whatever it is. Mm. And I get all these incredible stories from people about the impact that just me touching them in some ways has. Mm. And that brings meaning, that, Brings, me, brings meaning to the work that I do every day. So it's really important, I know, for me to keep on, to keep focused on touching people and doing the face-to-face -face stuff mm -hmm. and really connecting with people. Otherwise, I'll sit with a financial spreadsheet and just map out, you know? Mm. But that is what, that is in part what brings great, great meaning. Um, but also just for my life specifically. So when I, I, I need to know, like when I, when I ended up unwell, I lost everything. Mm. At 40 years of age, I had nothing. I had no mm. money because I couldn't work. Mm -hmm. And so I'm literally starting again. Mm. And that was really scary. There was no money being paid into super. I'm a renter. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, you know, nearly 47. Mm -hmm. and, and so now, but now with this, with this, particularly with the essential oil business that I've created, there is, there is, there's this great sense of faith that everything is absolutely going to be okay. Mm. And so whilst I need to feel that I am, so my why and the reason I do this is in, of course in part to be of service to other people because that's what I love, mm -hmm. empowering other women to do what I've done or empowering people to change their life in the way that I've done it. But also it is to, to build, you know, immense financial security for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and also, the reason I thought of this podcast was uh, I was reading a bit of Joseph Campbell, and he's the he's the person who identified the myths of the world, and, and he noticed this trend among all you know the heroes is what he calls them, 
and he says a lot of them start their journeys with a call to adventure mm-hmm. and it's really them following what he calls their bliss so what's what would you say is your bliss what, what are you following sure how to answer that question um, I'm not really sure I think I think okay so it's probably important that you know that I find it very difficult to link to think a long way forward into my future mm-hmm. so for instance lots of us who do create vision boards which I believe in profusely because I've had a significant impact on my life my vision board is only six months to 12 months ahead I don't think mm-hmm. beyond that mm-hmm. But all I have, in terms of following my bliss, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. Probably mm. I would need to get it inspired by other people's answers, I think, to cheat <laughs> a little bit. But mm-hmm. I think my driver, there is just a drive, this constant desire to kind of build and, and I don't think this is the answer you're looking for, but certainly to, to build a far bigger, greater audience and have far greater scope to reach and change lives and I think that excites me no end like mm. going back to doTERRA again the beautiful thing about that business is the humanitarian work I'm now able mm-hmm. to do and I can afford to do mm-hmm. you know trips this year we've got you know the opportunities they provide people at a certain level to go on and give back to communities around the world mm-hmm. this finally I'm in a position to be able to afford to do this stuff and to truly give back which mm-hmm. is very difficult when you're not earning very much money mm-hmm. <laughs> yep um, I don't think that answered your question. No, I think it does because yeah. I think throughout your whole journey, through everything that you've been through, from kind of doing well in school to uni to the various jobs that you've had, you're good at everything, mm. but it didn't really light a fire in you. No. But with holistic ingredient, you're still doing well, but there is something more to it that those previous jobs didn't have. There certainly is. Mm. Well, it's probably, it's in part because everything I'm doing feels, I mean, it's, it's kind of validated. Everything I share has impacted my life. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, everything that I've done to get myself standing vertical again mm-hmm. has worked for me in some way, shape or form and I know it can impact other, many other people. And so it's beautiful to be able to share a story with people and feel immensely authentic while you're doing it. Mm. And that is so exciting, like telling stories and giving people hope that they can have a happier life, a healthier life, free of fears and all sorts of other things is, feels amazing to be able mm. to do that. And also I think everything that you've been through has played a part in that from even some of the more vicious and nasty things like yeah. the, your, your episode with yeah. PTSD and, and chronic fatigue. It's all really playing a part in what holistic ingredient Yes. Absolutely. There's there's no question. I mean, I, if the, I don't know what would have happened to my career if I hadn't got sick. I dare say mm. I'd still be in recruitment, mm. but I'd probably be a homeowner. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's a silly question to even mm. ponder because I was just sick. Mm. <laughs> um, but really, it is, you know, it's amazing now. One of the core messages that I keep sharing in my therapy practice is that you really, it's so important that we learn from the challenges and we look for the blessings and it sounds so cliche but mm. there is a blessing in every single thing that happens in our life whatever mm. it is there is always one 
and also I've been reading a bit on positive psychology and, yeah. and like you mentioned there is uh, post-traumatic stress but then there's also post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. do you find that you've grown from oh gosh yeah. Im- immensely mm. yeah I mean you know I've gone from that girl who was who had very little self-worth and very low self-esteem and didn't think she was good enough and didn't think she was very capable to believing you know I had my days but generally speaking i truly believe that I can do anything I put my mind to. I mm. think if I could be honest, my biggest, my my challenge is, is just kind of reinventing myself and keeping myself inspired and stimulated. Mm-hmm. And that is hard. So I, I choose to work from home and choose to work alone as a way of managing my health, mm-hmm. which is predominantly really good. Mm-hmm. But being around people all day is something that would wear me down sitting on public transport every day every morning every night is something that would impact me as well so i've chosen to work and work and live at home predominantly alone but that comes with its downside hmm. so the, i'm you know I, I think what i'm learning at this you know seven years into my business is that the essential oil business i've been doing that for two years that's done really well but now i'm actually right okay i'm now i need to reinvent myself a little bit again mm-hmm. and start throwing myself into something else that's going to light my fire so i'm mm. about to start podcasting <laughs> well i can't yeah. wait to see what the next mm. the next phase of amy crawford looks like amy thank you so much for this thank you for really sharing those uh really personal stories and um yeah is there anything you'd like to close on? No, thank you. I think I've spewed forth many a word. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for having me. It was, you've really got me thinking. Okay. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Also, be sure to check out our website, disruptivebusinessnetwork.com, for all the amazing events we have coming up. Don't forget that we do have a monthly book giveaway to all our new newsletter subscribers. And again, thank you so much for listening. This is Rahul Sohans. Until the next episode. And lastly, this podcast was brought to you by Dan Scahill on the buttons and with music by Vashti Sivu. So thank you to the both of them.